Hello, this is Joe Peters at Coldwell Banker. On a personal note, we had a close relative go into hospice at a facility called Peggy's House, which is a center for Hope facility in Scotch Plains. While in Peggy's house, I met Joanne Gleason, who's the owner of Heart and Soul Senior Consignere Services. Joanne's services encompass both the patient and the family counseling through end of life. It's a heartwarming story. I hope you can get as much out of it as I did. Please listen in. There we go. So hello, Joanne. Hi, Joe. So my name is Joe Peters. I'm with Coldwell Banker Residential, and I am interviewing Joanne Gleason. Uh, and Joanne is with a company called Heart and Soul Senior Consignere Services. I never knew how to spell consignere until I typed it in. Um, Joanne, why don't you tell us, I mean, first of all, how did we meet? We met um, at a place called Peggy's House, which is one of the three centers for hope for hospice care. And I was there with my significant other who has passed and it was a very sad and stressful time for us, but through meeting and talking to Joanne, I felt much better about the process and the people that were there. And I said, to her, I'm going to follow up with you and get you on my podcast so that we can sort of explain what you do to other people, not to other people, but to other people will explain what you do in your services and see if you can be of help to other people elsewhere. So I thought we'd start about going on a little about your background. If I remember you owned a hardware, no, it was, a, it was something down in South Jersey. No, I actually grew up in Clark. Um, when I married, I moved to upstate New York near uh, West Point. Okay. And I ran a uh, I was the office manager for uh, over 40 years for uh, my husband's State Farm Agency, and Farm. Uh, that's, that's what I did for 41 years. It was a, it was a job that was very uh, public-oriented. Uh, we insured generations of families, not just people, but right. generations, grandparents, parents, those parents and children, that kind of thing. Got it. Okay, so that's what I remembered. So that was upstate New York near... West, West Point. Mm -hmm. so that's three miles, uh, 30 minutes west of West Point in Orange County, New York. So fond memories of West Point. The last time I went up there, we're a little off track, but was after COVID and it only lets you do certain things. I remember as a kid, we were all over that base and out on the football field and whatever, but now you're only allowed in for an hour and very, just like Peggy's house. I mean, it is a great facility, but half of what we saw in their introduction wasn't available because of COVID, but still had a wonderful experience. Mm -hmm. So you left that career and marriage and came back to Clark. That's correct. I um, decided I was trying to figure out what to do once I left my career. I had retired after almost 41 years of doing that, and I decided to come back to my hometown, but in the... Uh, 16 years prior to me actually moving back home, I had commuted 100 miles uh, once, twice, three times a week. My parents 
uh, became very ill over a period of time from 2001 to 2016. Okay. And so I was the only one that drove. My mother didn't drive. My father didn't drive. My sister did not drive. And so I had to make this journey of 100 miles, sometimes weekly, um, to take care of my parents. My dad passed away in 05 from dementia. I did not was not even aware of what hospice was at that time. Right. Which I had. Um, and he passed away in a nursing home. And it was a very unfortunate set of, of circumstances. It was not good. Um, when my mom passed away in 2015, um, I was actually very close to putting her in Center for Hope. Uh, my sister opted to live with her until the end of her life. And we had hospice come to the house. And then my sister passed away last year with hospice in the house. Um, and that kind of ended all of that. And then another three years later, I made the decision to come back home to my area and start my life over again. Ah. So it was personal family interreaction that got you involved. I'm not sure Absolutely. interest is the right word. It was duty at that point in time. And there's always one person in a family that's more dutiful than everybody else. I mean, I've got five kids. I see it with them and Marilyn had two in the same. It's, it's always that way. It's just, just human nature. Some people have more feeling towards this than others. But what you were telling me, and let's explain what Peggy's House Center for Hope is. It's a hospice-only facility. So when we were, Marilyn had gone into um, a program with um, Memorial Sloan Kettering. We literally got to the head of the pancreatic cancer department, and she took her case and said that it was stage four. And we started, she said, there's no way I can cure this, but hopefully we can treat it to the point where she has some life left. And Unfortunately, it was untreatable. So after four different sets of chemo and going into um, the hospital each time, Overlook, um, one of the doctors said, just shut the door and said, I think it's time we talk a different direction that maybe hospice is better for you than what we're doing. And by that time, we were talking about it because she realized she wasn't getting any better. So it took us about a week to change gears and get out of the hospital and through the people at Overlook. And they have, um, they have a name for it that I never heard before where people don't know what to do. And they decided that wasn't the right program for us, the hospice program. We knew what we wanted to do. And hospice being one of the, I don't know what I want to do is you've discovered what hospice is. So that person introduced us to um Peggy's house, which is in Scotch Plains, 30 suite facility, if I remember correct. And at the same time, our doctor introduced us to a medical doctor, not the cancer doctor, a place in, um, I would say it, it was in Brook, Somerville, Plainfield area, and it was a general facility. It wasn't hospice only. And after talking to several people, they said, look, I know both places. It's just night and day. One is sort of an airplane hangar with lots of things going on, including sports injury and hospice and six other things. And the other is a, a facility dedicated to hospice. And they probably don't cost any different. You have to decide, but there's just not a lot of 
two things. There's not a lot of availability because there are not a lot of places like this. And then secondly, it's not inexpensive. Um, it turned out that the other place was more expensive than Peggy's house. Uh, it was, I, I felt for our needs, which lasted 19 days, it was very well-priced. Um, I think if you lived there for six months, at the end of six months, they have to decide whether we stay on hospice or not. So it's not a, um, a facility for people that are going to be long-term anyway, but I think ours was a fairly accelerated term um, because Marilyn was ready for it and she treated it with open arms. And I'm so glad she was so strong. This is what she wanted. Uh, and it was, it was a great experience as far as not her dying, but the way she was treated. But we met in a lobby because this, like lots of other facilities, only could have so many people go back at once because of COVID rules. And even though they had lounges and they had places that people could eat and they had kitchens, a lot of it was curtailed because of the COVID restrictions. And one of the rules were only two people could be in the back at once where the suites were and there was more than two people. So I guess I was sitting in a lobby and you were coming in and I guess you volunteer there. So to tell you tell me about what you do there and the, the, um, this is not an advertisement for anybody. It's just to introduce you to the world, but whatever you're comfortable with talking about. Sure. Um, Center for Hope is a private facility. Um, it's the only one of its kind in Union County. I'm not even sure there's very many anywhere in the state like Center for Hope. Um, I can tell you two things. First of all, most of the people I come in contact with are exactly like you, emotional, um, not knowing what to do, um, feeling almost a little lost, feeling upset. And it's, um, it, it takes a certain amount of mindset in order to be able to understand people's emotions. Um, the reason why I can do it is I went through it with my dad, my mom, my sister. Um, I have actually no relatives left except for one aunt who right now is in rehab. Wow. Um, now the, the, the uh, story behind Center for Hope is that there's actually two facilities. There's a, um, a second facility in Elizabeth called, I believe it's Father Hudson. It's an older style home. It's a two-story home that houses 25 beds. Um, it's a little bit different environment. It's a little bit homier, cozier from what I understand. I've not been out there. Then you have Center for Hope where most people tell me that when they walk in there, um, they almost feel like they're in like a, a very nice hotel. Mm -hmm. And what is strikingly different about Center for Hope than say other facilities, and I can, I'll leave the uh, facility unnamed where my father was, but with Center for Hope, you have three wings of 10 beds. You have um, a nurse, you have LPNs and home health aides that are uh, assigned to each um, uh, patient. They also have um, out, of, out, of, um, home, out of the facility patients at home, um, not all patients are hospice. Some of them are what they call palliative care. Where oh, well, that was the word I was looking for. Yeah, they 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 still uh, the you know outlook is is not good, but they're still being treated for certain things. And we also have uh, respite care, which all that is is that's a hospice patient as a caregiver, um, and they bring the patient in and they stay for like five days and give the caregiver a little R and R. So uh -huh. you have respite care, palliative care. 
but mostly hospice care. And what makes Center for Hope so unique and wonderful is that you don't go in there and hear alarms and lights and um, noise. It's very peaceful, it's very quiet. About the noisiest thing that you will have in Center for Hope is what they call an oxygen concentrator, which oxygen is mainly, it's not used to treat a patient, it's, it gives comfort. And because it allows them to just be able to breathe easier, it, it's a comforting thing. Mm -hmm. um, for the most part, that's basically all hospice is, is to allow the process of dying to be comfortable. Um, and they will go out on a limb to make, I have seen staff there jump through hoops to manage a patient who is in a lot of pain. It's, it's amazing to see them come together and, and come up with something where they try to come up with something for that patient to be restful and peaceful and um, not be in any pain. So uh, Center for Hope is extremely unique. Um, I, I know there's other larger hospice facilities, um, but, but as far as I know, um, Center for Hope is unique unto itself in the type of facility that, that uh, she was in. And um, we have a, a very nice volunteer um, base. We have the end of life base as well, as you know. Um, and the only way you can actually be a staff person there is you have to be, as far as a nurse or any of them, you have to have compassion. I mean, this right. is a very different kind of nursing that not like you see in a hospital where they come in, take your blood pressure and do all these things. Um, they treat the patient for pain and they make sure they're very comfortable, but, um, you know, there's peace and quiet and that's what really makes that whole facility. Some people, very few, but if you come in and go, I, I don't know how you can be in here. And yet others come in and just find the peace and quiet of that building. Just so reassuring when you're in a very difficult situation as end of life. I know when, when I came over, I met with, um, Claire. And Claire had told me that she had been there four or five years, if I remember right, and that she had worked for other facilities. And this is the first one that she felt she could work for forever, okay? that, that it was a, a facility that matched her goals in palliative care or, or hospice care. And I explained to her that it's a difficult time. We don't know how long Maryland's going to last, but we were told... Uh, both by the doctor in Overlook and by the doctor in New York City at MSK that don't count it and moms count it in weeks. It's pretty short term. She's she's progressing pretty quickly. So we wanted it to be as comfortable as possible. So I said, I'd like to look at the room you have available so that she gets into a room where she's comfortable with it. I wanted two things. I wanted her to be able to see something out the window and I didn't want her to see people walking by in the hallway. And they showed us out of the 30 suites, they had four available. By suite, I mean, they got a bathroom, they have a little kitchenette, and they can't cook, but there's a microwave and whatever. And um, I went around with Claire and looked at all four of them twice. And I said, this is the one because of the two things I said. You can see the birds and the squirrels and the, the woods and... You, it was just so positioned that you couldn't see anybody going. Maybe they're all that way, but I didn't realize it. But we got a corner unit, and um, they were very accommodating with that. And then it turned out to be 
if you think about it, she went into this room on a bed. She was bedridden already and never left it, never left the room. So all she ever saw, because I'm sure she didn't remember what she saw going into the room, were the four walls of this room. And they had three different sets of three shifts, and each shift had a nurse and two, I think, two different levels, but two different helpers with the nurse that were trained. And I've got to tell you, other than one woman who gave me a hard time about pouring my own soda. I got, and I, I said, I know I'm not supposed to do it, but the other nurse said I could come do it. <laughs> I'm not sure why one says yes or one says no, but whatever, if you want to pour it for me. Uh, that was the only only negative of the whole thing. And she was in there 19 days. And I must have met just about everybody in the place in that 19 days because I was there a lot of the time, including the volunteers. And I was just blown away by... I've always been in management. I've always been in um, in in the technical end of management, uh, running IT for large scale companies. And I've always said that when you walk through a store, let's not pick on a name, but let's say you go through a chain store, and everybody in that store says hello to you, and you go through another store in that chain that's ten miles down the street, and everybody can't make eye contact with you. It's not happening by accident. It comes from the top down. And the people who are doing the training there are just absolutely amazing based on the results that came out of it. Because even the Marilyn, I'd come in and her hair would be done differently. And she said, every time I get bathed, and I do it two or three times a day, they had to clean her up because she was bedridden. She said, they wash my hair and they're so good with me. And she, she really enjoyed it. And she was at the end, sort of, we, we could see she was, I could see before she went in, she was fading into the mattress here at home. She was diminishing. And that type of cancer is it's a one-way street. I mean, maybe you get it caught earlier and you can live a little longer, but as her doctor said, nobody over 60 lists more than six months and you got three months out of it. That's about average. Um, but everybody that worked on her was wonderful and she's a very strong woman and wouldn't ask for help when she didn't need it. She wasn't... Um, it's probably why our relationship lasts 33 years. She was an independent person who didn't complain. And I remember Claire told me the morning of the night she died, that Claire, the same woman who showed me around, came in and says, Marilyn, you're not asking for pain medicine. And unless you ask, we can't give it to you. And she said, no, but I don't feel like I need it. And that was a Saturday morning, and I was there from like 11 to 1. I left from like 1 to 4 for an appointment, and the kids came in and sat with her, and they were calling me saying, she's in awful pain. And I said, I just left. She wasn't in effect in that you haven't been there in three days. Maybe you don't realize how she's progressed because she kept getting worse and worse, but not. But apparently something was giving, and, and, and they started giving her morphine, and they they tried to, because she didn't have any in her, to catch up, to get the pain quelled. And by the time I got back, she was at peace in bed and they left. And 
I had talked with the nurse coming on on the second shift, and she said, I was told when I came in, she could pass on this shift, so be aware of it. And I said, okay, so I'm going to stay. I went out front and talked to the head nurse. I don't want to mention names, but the head nurse, um, who was very frank with me, she said, Joe, if it's not this shift, it's next shift, you're near end. So they said, well, you could, we could give you extra rooms. We could let you sleep in another room or you could sit here with her. I decided to sit there with her and I was holding her hand and um, nodding off at two in the morning. And I woke up and I realized she wasn't breathing. Her hand was still warm, but she wasn't breathing. And obviously it was over, but we had to do a couple of checks with the uh, equipment, get the head nurse in and whatever. And the, the people in the facility were very accommodating through that and compassion. Compassion is the word I use. Um, but you told me, so so right before she went into that, two nights before, the Friday night, that was a Saturday night, they had to move, I guess they have a once a week meeting and they had moved her to end of life, which meant in effect, you're probably within seven days. And we were relieved, as she was relieved, because she she wanted to pass. Um, but we didn't think it was going to happen that quick, and it did. And uh, I didn't see her suffer that afternoon, but the head nurse said, no, there was angst in her face. Something's giving way in the lower back. And uh, she passed peacefully. I don't remember her lurching or, or whatever. I just remember waking startled. I couldn't have been asleep 15 minutes. And I, I opened my eyes. Her hand was in mine. It was still warm. When a, the third shift nurse came in, he said, her legs are still warm. If she's passed, it's just happened. And... Uh, but you told me you do what I was doing with people that don't have people who can sit there with them. You you sort of focus on the end of life and you and people that work with you do explain how you do that. And, and you not only do it in, in Peggy's house, but you do it in people's houses. I haven't. Yeah. Well, here's what my experience has been. My my very first end of life was exactly what happened with you and your wife. Um, I had sat with a man um, who was at end of life. And what we do as end of life volunteers, 11th hour, is basically we dim the lights, we put on soft music, we tell them who they are. Your last sense to lose is your hearing, so they hear you. And um, I held his hand. I had no idea who the gentleman was. And I sat with him for probably two hours. Um, and it was time for me to go up front and do my ushering. So I did my ushering, came back at eight o'clock and said, mm, he's still, he's still going. I was almost going to go home and I, something told me to stay. So I stayed went back to what I was doing. I held his hand. I just took my cell phone. I put on some really pretty music and we both kind of just sat there silently. And maybe 15 minutes later, I looked up and I was like, I don't think he's breathing. So he was still holding my hand and it was still warm. I called in um, an LPN. Um, they then called in a nurse and he had, yes, he had passed. And what made that moment very poignant for me was that he was alone. I was the only one in the room with him when he passed. And apparently he was in his 90s. He had a wife in her 90s and she couldn't bear to watch him die. Mm. So she stayed home and Senator Hope was able to tell her that her husband did not die alone. 
and right. that was my very, very first end of life. Um, and that to me illustrated exactly um, why I do it. Um, I've not had quite that experience, but I've done it probably like seven or eight times now. I actually did it. Uh, end of life is not just with a patient who is alone. Sometimes I do it right with the family. I had a family come to the front desk and asked me to leave them in prayer. And it was so touching that I had walked into the room. There was eight of them in there. We all clasped hands. The last person was the daughter on my left. She held the hand of the patient. I led them in a prayer. And then the wife started to pray out loud. And we did this prayer, prayer thing with all the family. And um, they were just so grateful to me. And when I left that day, I drove home. And I couldn't even put my car radio on. I was so touched because what people don't understand about end of life is that this is my philosophy, Joe. We are all going to face end of life at some point in our lives. Right. Um, I feel as though if it's peaceful, if someone can be there, that no one should die alone, if it's humanly possible, um, it, it should be made as comfortable as it can be and as peaceful as it can be. And that's exactly how I see it. And I thought to myself, I do this because I don't know any of these people. But what changed was a month ago, I made a trip all by myself. I drove 600 miles one day to Ohio. My favorite sister-in-law was dying. I did not know that she was at end of life when I got there. And I did end of life with her. And she was my family member. And I just did it. Um, it's something that you walk away from it if you can do it. You don't treat it as something to be afraid of. You treat it, I treat it as a gift that families are sharing very, very private moments. It's a very unique situation uh, that I, I can't just, if you can't do it, you won't understand it. But when you can do it, it is probably, aside from my children and grandchildren, it is the most rewarding thing I have ever done in my entire life. Wow. Um, I, I am now the uh, team leader for the end of life team. We just had a meeting. And uh, we're trying to get COVID kind of because stop these programs, stop and go, stop and go. We're trying to pick up the pieces again um, and get us back into the rooms for end of life um, because this is what, what it's for. Um, it, it, we always ask permission first from the family. We never right. just walk in there. We want to make sure that they're comfortable with us being there or if they're there. I had one family, um, her husband... She lost her husband. He was a uh, a Cranford uh, fireman, and I actually went out to dinner with her afterwards one day. And um, so you, it, it's a it's a very unique situation. It's a unique facility, and um, I just find it extremely extremely rewarding. Wow. So you have a business set up called Heart and Soul Consignier Services, which you mentioned up front. And um, do you mind if I share the phone number to that business? Okay, so it's 732-285-2222. And it's Joanne Gleason, J-O-A-N-N-E-G-L-E-E-S-O-N. Um, if anybody wants to talk to you about what they're going through and either have you help or consult or whatever, you, you're open to that kind of thing. Now, you do 
I didn't realize you became the end of life team leader. Is that an all volunteer team or yes. is it all is? volunteer? And how many volunteers do they have in that facility? Uh, well, here's the interesting thing that happened. Um, when I joined Center for Hope in March of 21, uh, there were just before COVID, uh, there were less than 10 volunteers. Right. Um, COVID came in. We came in with over 100 volunteers. Well, we're back down to maybe a dozen volunteers. Everybody went back to work. Right. Uh, and that kind of thing. Uh, we have uh, maybe 12 uh, volunteers um, that work hard at Center for Hope. And then we also have my meeting. I had about eight people. I have one woman. This I have one remarkable woman on my team. Her name is Robin. This woman stays with the patient until that patient passes. She does not leave. Wow. She's, she's actually studying to become what they call um, a death doula, which is a person who actually is hired by families that actually stay with the patients um, while, while they're in the dying process. She's not, she's a younger woman. I, I know she's younger than me. And I, I'm so respectful of her dedication and her, her interest in this because um, it's, it's, it's not some, see, this is the thing about it. Most people never think about this until they're faced with it. Right. And I always tell people like when you walk in or anybody else that walks in and they're upset or whatever, I tell them there is no manual in life that tells us what to do next. We have to rely on like staff at Center for Hope, volunteers that talk to you and say things to you and suggest things to you. And because there really isn't any anyone out there that, you know, there, there's nothing out there that teaches you when this occurs because nobody really wants to think about it. Right. Now, now, what I do in my business actually is actually even harder. Believe it or not, I'm a non-medical caregiver of seniors, but it turns out that all my clients have dementia. And it's actually one of the hardest things. My dad had dementia. I know okay. he had vascular dementia. There's nine different kinds of dementia. Alzheimer's is dementia. Dementia is not an Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's is a form of dementia. It's, there's nine right. different kinds uh, like football players might get um, front, frontal lobal uh, frontal lobe dementia from concussions um, and so when you deal with dementia that is hard because I've got all three levels going somebody in early dementia one in the middle and I've got one that's pretty far far along um, and it's that to me is harder than what I do because at end of life People are at peace. There's family around them. It, it's, a, it's a whole different uh, makeup. Um, so what I basically have done is I just, so actually, interestingly, when I started the Center for Hope, one of the nurses said to me when they asked me what I did for my business, and they, I told them, they're like, oh, you're a PhD. And I'm like, what? And they're like, you're a professionally hired daughter. And I said, yes, that's exactly what I do. Oh. I do, we do food shopping, we clean the house, we, we are companionship, we help them uh, if they're having trouble with their cell phones, we have them organize things. We just, if you think of whatever a daughter might come in and help a, a mother or father, because we're non-medical, um, that's exactly what I do. And I have one employee who is, she's amazing. The, the girl is just, I, I, she's just born to do this. And I've been so gifted to have her work with one of my clients. Um, and so that work kind of ties in, but you would think that my volunteer work was harder with end of life, but it really isn't. It's really my other job 
you know, I wasn't intending on taking care of dementia patients, but unfortunately it's becoming rampant in this country and people, uh, sons and daughters whose parents are starting to develop this um, problem, they're, they're, they don't know what to do and they don't know how to handle it and they work and they have children and they're juggling life and it's very, very difficult. And that's why I started my business. Everything, everything I've learned in Holland for pouring my own soda that I encountered at Peggy's house was wonderful. And in effect, you're like an angel I found in the lobby and you were just coming in to volunteer for the, the second shift uh, switchboard. And we got the talking because I was waiting for people to come out. And then I lost your car and I had to get another one. And uh, uh, my son-in-law was with me that first time or the second time. And I just said, I got to circle back and, and talk to her a little bit. So you do this dementia business in the house typically not that's this is not a dementia facility do you have a geographical territory that you try to stay within yes i i my theory is i stay close to home which is the clark garwood westfield cranford because if i have to run out for any reason right um, i had a client in linden um i've actually had two clients pass at this point um but if i have a client that uh needs me like in an emergency, I, I don't want to be too far from a client. I, I, for my own self, I mean, I'm doing this as a second career. Um, yeah. And the one thing that's different about this career, my other career was a good career. It taught me a lot. And I know I can answer a lot of insurance questions for you, but this is what I'm passionate about. And I know, I know what people are going through because I lived it. I lived it. My dad passed from dementia and heart disease vascular dementia and my mother passed which i didn't think it could be any worse than that my mother passed from bone cancer um and that was horrible um so instead of taking all of that and thinking that you know i've had all of this in my life and how awful it was i took it and i decided to make some to do something with it and so i go out there and i in a small way i'm it's just me and one other girl Right. And we, we do these things and we're helping families cope. It's a cope, we're a coping mechanism for dealing with some, because the problem with dementia, especially, is it's progressive. It never gets better. It only gets better. Right. So even in the time frame that I have one client, uh, it's going to be just about a year. And what I see is night and day. Um, and it's not getting easier. It's getting more difficult. Well, and it was interesting that she said, you, you, I said, so what do you do at end of life? And you told me that night we were sitting in the lobby talking for a half hour. You said, well, we put on soft music. We either read or talk or pray or whatever they want to do. And I, I was like, in the next week, I went into her room and the soft music was on. And I almost said, uh, if it wasn't Joanne, an angel like Joanne was here because I wouldn't have thought to put that music on. And it was like Sunday music. Yeah, it was like uh, just mood music. And it was nice. And we literally had it on when she did pass. Uh, it wasn't a great experience life-wise, but it was a good experience based on what we didn't know. And I appreciated the facility, the Center for Hope, the people, the Peggy's House staff, and I appreciated the volunteers like yourself. So 
I appreciate you coming on and talking to me about this. What I will do is I will get this posted in the next week and I'll send you a link to it. And let me give you contact information again. I'll put it on the, the post as well, but it's Heart and Soul Senior Consignor Services, Joanne Gleason, and it's 732-285-2222. So is there anything you wanted to say that I didn't cover or we didn't cover? I think that the, what I would like to close out by saying is this. Um, in my experience in life, especially now talking about Center for Hope and End of Life, personally, I think it's harder on the family than it is on the patient because wow. the patient is being cared for, um, they're being attended to, the, the, the care that they're getting is phenomenal. And, you know, we're the people, you, families, whatever, they're the ones that have to come in and, and I, I've seen I mean, you can bring in a family pet. You can bring in little babies. Um, you can, I watched two sons bring, carry in this big, heavy recliner for their dad. So uh, that dad comfortable. I, I find that it's, people have to leave. One of the hardest things people say to me is, I don't know when to leave. I don't know how to leave. I don't know right. where to stay or go. Um, it's actually harder on the family than it is on the patient because the patient is there very quiet and peaceful and restful. And it's the families that are struggling with this vision that they have to accept this, that they have to, you know, figure out how they're going to cope with it. Um, we do have um, Carol White is wonderful. I've had dinner with her. She's the bereavement uh, person for Center. Okay. Uh, we have, we offer bereavement for people that have difficulty. Um, I've had, um, uh, families call afterwards after their uh, loved one passed and um, they they contact us and tell us they make donations we get donations all the time of things that they can't use anymore right. um, but I think that what I hope that comes out of it is that volunteers and staff we try our best to just make the experience as peaceful and calm and as and and I think from what I see, I've been doing this a year and a half now, and I, I that's what I definitely see. I see people, you know, some obviously take it harder than others, um, some actually, you know, but I think for the most part, people really feel that when their loved one passes at Center for Hope, they did the best that they could possibly do for them, and that really is the way it is. And, you know, it's angels like you that help. They're all angels in there. They're well-trained. It's a great organization. But people come in and volunteer their own time to help people, as you described, is wonderful. I really appreciate you coming on, and I hope uh, some people find you out of this conversation. So I'm going to stop the recording. Wow, what a heartwarming story. Joanne Gleason gives so willingly to both families and patients, both within facilities such as Peggy's house and actually in their home for the end of life process. It's a process that none of us go through very frequently, so it takes a special kind of skill and she willingly lends this skill uh, on an as needed basis. Her contact information can be found on the landing page for this podcast. I hope if you ever need her services, you'll call upon Joanne.